Title of the message is, It Starts With Doctrine, all right? And let's read here, actually the first three verses of Ephesians chapter 1, though we are going to officially cover verse 1 and 2. Uh, Paul is writing and he says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in, what's the next word you guys, everybody say it, in Christ. Okay, you may have a seat at this time. Now let me just begin by saying this. I, I have a dear friend by the name of Ken Hughes. He's a wonderful Bible teacher. He's been a big mentor to me. And he made this statement, and I'm just basically going to quote him because I totally believe this as well. He said that the book of Ephesians, when it's carefully, reverently, and prayerfully considered, will change your life. I, I believe that with all my heart. I mean, this is just one of the greatest books you could ever study. And it doesn't take long to sense its value, its power, um, its priority just within the first few verses, actually. I mean, we just read verse 3, this incredible burst of expression and worship to Almighty God. My goodness gracious, that, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I and mean, behind Jesus is the Father who has reached out to us, who has given us every great spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, which carries the idea that like, they're as sure as sure can be. It's like if it's written in heaven, if you will, it's, it's guaranteed, absolute. I mean, it's yours, and, and no one can take it away from you. It's like, in Christ? What does that mean? All spiritual blessings in Christ have been given to us as believers? Well, oh my goodness, I mean, so much of the book is identifying what that means. My, my, my point is, though, I mean, you just start, you know, just a few steps into the book and you're sensing, wow, this is a very unique book that pulsates with value, power, and revelation. As I mentioned, what we want to do is officially take the first two verses and we're going to do that, but I actually want us to turn to chapter four, okay? There's a real good reason why. Turn to chapter four because now we're looking at kind of the middle of the book and the reason is because I want us to identify an important reality that Ephesians communicates, okay? And this is actually kind of our first point, and it's in your notes and stuff. And the first point is that the big picture of Ephesians tells us that in principle, the foundation of the right application for life and knowing God's will begins with right belief. I mean, it starts with dark doctrine. Now, look Look for the word therefore there in chapter four, verse one. When Paul says, I, what's the next word, you guys? I, therefore. Okay, there's a transition in the book there. Uh, that's, that, that's what's taking place. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord. He's writing from prison. I, I, I beseech you, I urge you. He says, to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, look up here for a second. I want, I want everybody to get this, really important. Reason I want us to go to chapter four real quick is I want us to see an important reality of the book of Ephesians, okay? It's very, very important. And that is chapter four and then five and six 
address what Christianity looks like in application, what it should look like in our lives. It addresses the right application for life, the the wisdom for life, God's will in our life. So chapter four, five, and six are really, really, really practical because it addresses how we're to communicate, how we're to reconcile differences. It addresses how to change habits that are hard to change. It addresses how God actually equips the community of the church to impact the generation. It addresses spiritual warfare. There is such a thing as evil. And chapter six addresses how we stand against godless influences that we don't see that clearly impact the material world. It addresses issues of conscience. And and actually, in in chapter four, five, and six, you're you're also learning what a husband looks like according to original design and what a wife looks like and what a dad looks like to his son and daughter and and what work should look like in family matters and so forth. So therefore, chapter four, five, and six reveal to us what God's will looks like in lifestyle, what the truth looks like in application, okay? However, just check, check with me, chapter four, five, and six obviously come after chapters one, two, and, can someone tell me? Three, right. And for good reason, because one, two, and three, chapters one, two, and three are the foundational beliefs for the right application for life. It's like the reality is, before you can understand what marriage is all about, there has to be a foundation laid in your life. You actually need to know who God is. I mean, before I get it with marriage, I, I have to understand, well, like who God is, seriously, and, and, and the biggest, highest teachings about what reality is in Jesus Christ. Before I can really know how to communicate in the importance of words as life and death are in the power of the tongue, I actually have to note chapters one and two and three. Before I understand with regard to reconciliation and love and winning the spiritual battle, the right understanding of the Lord is absolutely essential. Now here's the thing. We live in what I'd call the Jeffersonian culture. And I'm referring to Thomas Jefferson. And if Thomas Jefferson was here, he would say, beliefs are really not that important. I mean, you could just jump to chapter four, five, and six. That's really what's most important is applications in life. I mean, just being a good husband and how, you know, loving and speaking the truth and so forth and so on. It's really not about beliefs. It's, 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 or it's, it's not about creeds. It's not about beliefs. It's about deeds. How many of you are tracking with me on that idea? You understand? This is what Jefferson said uh, in a letter that's kind of a famous one. He, he was writing to a woman. He says, you know, I've never tried to persuade someone else to believe as, as I believe about God because who knows? It doesn't matter what you believe. It's it's by my life and by my deeds that my life is validated, not by my, say that last word with me, not by my what? Beliefs. Well, there's a certain appeal, no doubt, to Jefferson's comments, and he would probably win a popularity contest in our culture. However, the book of Ephesians uh, completely contradicts that statement. And it's important to flush out, really. As logical as Jefferson appears, 
And as like, well, you know, I mean, it's like, hey, come on, man. I mean, it's just really important who you are. And it's important you're kind and just. And, you know, it's, it's, I don't really care about your beliefs or what's really happening behind the scenes. And there's a, it, there's, there seems to be a certain logical to that, to that. But actually, we need to flush that out. Please hear me. If someone were to say to you, it really doesn't matter what you believe. So long as you're sincere in what you believe, well, Actually, such a statement is promoting a belief. <laughs> I mean, if someone says it doesn't matter what you believe, well, they are calling you to believe it doesn't matter what you, what? Believe, right? So it does matter what you believe. So if someone says it doesn't matter what you believe, it just doesn't matter what you believe, you know, do good deeds and just like, you know, do just things and stuff. Wait a second, time out. Any type of promotion to disregard doctrine, which is a big, I know, word and stuff, but just teachings, ideas, information, stuff. any idea to do that promotes actually doctrine, promotes belief. How many of you are tracking so far, Rachel? Okay, watch this. Now, if I were to say, you know, it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you are kind and just, I mean, there's a certain air of like, you know, I think I kind of know what you're saying and, you know... It's important that we are kind to one another and and that statement certainly has an international appeal because there's all kinds of beliefs and ideas and world's views out there. So let's be kind to one another, treat each other justly and things. Bear with me on this. Here's the thing. Um, If you were to say it's important to be kind and just towards your fellow man, what is that based on? It's based on something. Is it because science tells us it's important to be kind uh, or just towards your fellow man? See, ultimately, what we learn is that there is no basis for right and wrong without God. I, I don't have any authoritative basis whatsoever to say, man, it's really important we are just towards our fellow man and we treat you know, women properly and we value people of different you know, views with regard to their sexuality and their attraction and stuff. I mean... There's no basis, authoritative basis, without actually a moral governor that created the entire universe. Because you see, the alternative would be if there's no creator nor moral governor of the universe, uh, that means that at best, you've heard me say this many times, we're educated beefsteak inspired by imaginations which are driven by chemicals in our body. So who's to say what is right and wrong? Because really then I would just be a byproduct of nature. And what I feel and my attraction towards my wife is really, I don't it's not real love. It's just merely chemical. It's just bodily reactions. And so, well, that's not the case. Obviously, you're more than body. Of course, your body, soul, and spirit. But my point is simply this, is that there's no authoritative basis to identify what is right and wrong without Almighty God, you see. And therefore, you can better understand why Paul, okay, we're going to start it this morning, but why Paul spends so much time in chapters 1, 2, and 3. And I, and I know you don't understand what I'm really saying here, but just get the principle because he does spend a lot of time talking about doctrine, doctrine, teaching, what's supposed to inform your life with regard to an accurate view of who Almighty God is. Because the reality is, it's impossible to have the right application for life without the right foundation under your feet, you see. I think on a certain level, our generation understands how important it is to filter and protect ourselves from bad information. I mean, what is a biological virus? It's kind of a gross idea, you know, but 
right? Someone sneezes or coughs and have you ever gone like this kind of, you know, it's like you don't want it in your eye, you know, because if, if, it's just, if that little information biologically gets in your body, it can start to break down a healthy system. Right? So there is such a thing as, there's such a thing as information biologically. We don't want bad information, these virus in our bodies because it breaks down a healthy system. And we understand, man, I don't want the Ebola virus, you know. And we also realize that there's information that can get into your computer. So there's such a thing as a technological or computer virus. Both carry information that disrupts and even destroys healthy systems. But what if our intellectual and emotional life as humans was running and inspired by bad information? I mean, do we really know the full ramifications, what's at stake? And what would Jesus say? I mean, is it possible, you guys, seriously, is it, we, got, we got biological viruses, we got computer viruses, is it possible that the human race is under a different virus, an ideological, spiritual one, that's depleting the human race, that is self-destructive and self-defeating, and, and is it possible, of course it is, we, we know that it's the case, well, how, how much of it is the case? How depleted is man, and how would we know? And getting more personal, how would you know if your life systems of your intellectual, emotional life and your family life are healthy or not? How would you know? How would you know if your computer is running properly? How would you know if your body is running properly? Okay, how would you know if your life is running properly? When it comes to your life, the only way we would know ultimately is if in principle you were informed by chapters 1, 2, and 3 of the book of Ephesians. That's the only way we would know whether our life is actually being run by the right information and in right relationship with Almighty God. So the book of Ephesians tells us really, in principle, this is kind of, we're starting in chapter four, we're gonna go back to chapter one and say, but it tells us in principle, it actually, life in so many ways starts with doctrine, It starts with an accurate view of who God is and who the Lord Jesus is. Now, here's the thing. I I know the term doctrine is kind of cold and sterile, and it's not a term that we really use. It's unpersonal. It's factoidish. But doctrine means teaching, and God has revealed himself to us in Christ. Can I hear an amen to that? So therefore, watch, the doctrine of Christ is like the highest, most sacred teaching that must be protected and stewarded responsibly. And in essence, Paul is saying, look, you cannot live a decent and loving life except on the basis of faith and belief and doctrine. And so therefore, you have to be grounded. We're going to be learning this. He's just saying in principle, you have to be grounded in chapters 1, 2, and 3 to get to chapters 4, 5, and 6. So one of the questions we might ask then is how grounded are we in chapters one, two, and three? Is it great? You keep saying that we haven't even studied it yet. I know, I know, but I mean, how grounded are we in doctrine? I mean, how healthy are we there? Because, I mean, here's the thing. I'm so fired up about it because we're really all gonna grow in big ways as a church family because we're just gonna, man, we're gonna be swimming and enjoying this, the most incredible teaching, far superior than the Declaration of Independence. I mean, I mean the greatest revelation that exists, that's in Jesus Christ, that I, that I guarantee you will change your life. 
And I guarantee you is essential actually for the right application for your life. Look, look what Paul writes. We have this scripture on the screen. It's 1 Timothy 4, 16. He says, you know, watch your life. Watch it and your doctrine, he says. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. It's no wonder Ephesians lays a foundation of doctrine before getting to duty, so to speak. Now you talk about, go back to chapter one, you guys. You talk about the beauty of doctrine, of Christ. You guys, check this out. In verse three through four, in the original language, okay, we're gonna read in a second. In the original language, it's actually just one sentence. The translators broke it up in a few sentences. It's modeled on the Hebrew barakah or blessing song celebrating God's work and bringing us salvation. And it's almost like, so, so it's like this incredible <laughs> burst, explosion of worship and, that identifies the highest and most wonderful truths that exist. And it's, it's almost as if Paul is caught up in it in a way. Um, he's just like enraptured by what he's saying here. It's so awesome. I don't know if I've ever done that. We've got to stand to read this. You've got to stand with you. Come on, let's all stand once again. All right, we're going to read this together. Check this out. Verse 3. All right, one sentence, verse 3 down to verse 14. But you talk about beauty and awesomeness of doctrine, right? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. I mean, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in, everybody say it, love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound towards us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in, everybody say it, Christ, both which are in heaven and on earth, in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will that we who first trusted in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his, everybody say it, Glory. All right, you may have a seat at this time. I, I want to share something with you personally. Please hear this, okay? Now, one, that is so big and awesome. Hey, can I hear another amen to that? It, and it's so thick. I can't wait to get into it. We're going to start it next week. But here's what I want to share with you. You know, I mentioned four, five, and six. 
have to do with the how-tos in life and communicate, reconcile, love, how God builds a church and impacts a generation, how to be a godly parent and how to be a godly husband and wife and, and you know, be standing strong in spiritual warfare and so, so forth and so on. If I could just say something. My life personally, as I look back, has been more impacted um, as a as a man, as a husband, as a father, as a Christian, has been more impacted by what we just read there, sinking deeper and deeper into my soul, because it's like my eyes are still being opened to the reality of it, then maybe the how-tos in life, then like... Um, how, how to effectively communicate or something. I mean, what I'm trying to say is, it, it's because I am growing and understanding that I'm a part of something much bigger than myself. That the Lord is in me and with me and, and works alongside and working through and, and realizing that my life actually, in one way, shape, or form, is gonna impact generations to come directly or indirectly be, because it's, it's based upon what I just read there. That there's, there's a creator, the eternal one. Before he made it, anything, he like had this plan and that he chose me to be in it and that I'm a part of it in, in one way, shape, or form and everything is moving towards Jesus Christ. That, those realities have more rocked my life um, than any how-to message could. It, it's led to perseverance. It's led to forgiveness. It's led to love. It's led to um, viewing my fellow man in a much more healthy way, this steam of big, small, black, white, homosexual or not. It's just because of the incredible, awesome love of God in Jesus Christ. The redemptive work of Christ is just continues, actually. The, those verses we just read continues to rock my world, and they're going to yours as well. It's the very foundation, ultimately, for right application for life. And as I mentioned, it's almost like Paul is is enraptured with it. And, and, and look here in verse one, okay? I mean, Paul, who is, who is Paul? Well, let me just say quickly, our second point is, well, he's the one who pens Ephesians and his life really lends incredible credibility and veracity to this book. That what we just read is totally true. I mean, Paul was a Jew, he, he was raised and spent a lot of time in Jerusalem, but he, he was born in Tarsus. His father was a Pharisee. So he was a son of a Pharisee, obviously. And his father, therefore, was very committed Jew to the scriptures. And we first hear about Paul, who at the time is known as Saul. Okay? We first hear about him because he's in Jerusalem and he really cannot stand Christians and he's after them and he oversees. And to, to what extent, we don't know, but he's overseeing the death of, of Stephen, who is the first Christian martyr in Jerusalem. He, he participates. I don't know if he picked up stones or he's watching other people do it, but he, he was participating in the stoning death of the first Christian who was martyred in Jerusalem. So he was a major antagonist to Christianity. Later, he, he would be known as Paul, which means small. And he was like going after Christians. He was persecuting them. 
In his own words, he says, for you have heard of my former conduct in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God beyond measure, tried to destroy it, and I advanced in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries in my own nation, be exceedingly zealous for the traditions of my fathers. I mean, I read that really quick, but one of the things he said there was, I tried to destroy Christianity. It's like, whoa. You know, and he thought he was doing the right thing. He was sincere about his beliefs. And it led to, though, the wrong applications. And, and ultimately, according to Acts chapter 9, it's, it's, like, it's like Saul didn't find God. It's like God found him. And that's the truth with all of us. We actually don't find him. He finds us. And he ran him down. And chapter 9 of Acts, it's like Paul has this incredible experience. He's knocked down by this light from heaven, and he ends up asking, who are you? And Jesus answers, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. I mean, who are you that I might know you? He's basically asking, what do you want me to do? And it was, it was the beginning of the major turning point in his life. And so this incredible antagonist of Christianity, who hated Christians, who wanted to knock out Christianity, just get rid of Christianity, ends up being won by the risen Christ. Paul goes on to spearhead these great journeys to get the gospel out to the nations. Three big missionary journeys. He ends up penning two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul's life is a testament of the belief he tried to destroy. I mean, the reason is because the belief he tried to destroy was based on the living Christ. And because of that, he, he couldn't destroy it because Jesus is alive. Christianity is not just a bunch of ideas in a book, and so let's get rid of it, throw it in a cave or something. He, he's he's kind of trying to do that, but he, but he finds out, goodness gracious, I can't get rid of this Christianity because I happen to come face to face with the risen Christ himself. You know, one of our country, country's leading, most prominent, articulate atheists, Sam Harris, uh, is coming out with a new book in September called Waking Up. And I read a little opinion or editorial, I can't remember exactly what it was, the New York Times about it. And Sam went to Israel. He's an atheist. He went to Israel. He wanted to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. He's in the Galilee. He's in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. I know exactly where he's at the time because he's, he's, he's up on the traditional side of the Sermon on the Mount. And he has this experience up there. He writes, in an afternoon on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee, atop the Mount where Jesus is believed to have preached his most famous sermon, he says, as I gazed at the surrounding hills, a feeling of peace came over me. And it soon grew to a blissful stillness that silenced my thoughts. And in an instant, the sense of being separate self, an I or a me, vanished, he said. So what he's describing, trying to identify for him is that on the northwestern side of the Sea of Galilee, I put it maybe, I just born the north side. Um, he has this transcendent experience, this experience that's bigger, he feels, than himself. That's what he's trying to uh, identify there. And he says, goes on to say, 
Now, he says, if I were a Christian, I would undoubtedly have interpreted this experience in terms in Christian terms. And I, I might believe that I had glimpsed the oneness of God or been touched by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so Sam Harris, atheist, you know, big influence on this generation, has this unique transcendent experience. And he would say, and he's saying that, you know, Christians would put that in the category of some experience, you know, with, with the Lord, the Holy Spirit. But what he's on a journey of is to recategorize those experiences. That you don't have to look through them through a lens of Christianity or that it's divine. And so he's on this journey to try to do so. There's a point why I mentioned all of this. Because here's what's being said in the book of Ephesians. The doctrine of Christianity is not based, okay, upon subjective experience. So, so Sam has this experience. Okay, okay, fine. And maybe the Lord was trying to get his attention, you know. I mean, it's like Sam, maybe. I, but the thing is, it's like, it's not based on a subjective experience. It's, it's based on the truth of the person and work of Jesus, which includes the bodily resurrection of Christ. You see, Paul would not have been convinced by an experience that Sam is talking about there. What, what changed his life was the fact that he was convinced that Jesus had bodily resurrected from the dead. That's very, very important for us to understand. So please look down at verse 18. He says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Look at verse 19. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the, can someone tell me? The dead, you bet. You know, British agnostic George Littleton held the position that Paul's conversion was unlikely and he set out to disprove Paul. And in doing so, he would just knock out two thirds of the New Testament. And so he started his research on Paul. He ended up concluding something entirely different than he thought. He said, Paul's conversion and apostleship alone duly considered our demonstration sufficient to prove Christianity to be divine revelation. And he ended up becoming a Christian himself. See, in short, Paul was at one time a major anti-Christian. He was responsible for the death of those who follow Christ. But there was this 180 turn he became an ambassador of Jesus. He, he was embraced by the other apostles and, and yet controversy followed him, no doubt about it. Listen, he became in prison. He's writing this from prison. And, and if, is he, can, you, can you say that again? Yeah, he's writing this from prison. And a lot of people who are, who are with him have, have split. And so, so some of you are thinking, well, um, it doesn't sound like he was that successful in his generation. I mean, success in our culture has to do with name recognition, how much money you make, you know, uh, how big the corporation is or something. Um, yeah, it has to do with numbers and name recognition, right? You say, well, I, I mean, it doesn't seem like he was that successful in his generation. Um, 
Well, let me just say this. He, he, was, he was really faithful in his generation. He was faithful because what he was doing was based upon what is true, which actually lends to the credibility of what he's writing here. Because he's absolutely convinced, even though he's getting a pushback in his generation with regard to it, he's convinced it's t- the gospel in Jesus is totally true. And that's why we follow him as well. We follow him not because being a Christian is going to win a popularity contest in a generation, but because the Lord is true. Can I hear another amen to that? So just that second point, the author lends incredible credibility to the truthfulness and veracity of the book. Okay, let's look at verse one. Now, you say, yeah, Paul, okay, we've been talking about him. Now, an apostle, okay, an apostle. Apostle means, uh, the, the word means one that's sent out or sent out one. Uh, but being identified as an apostle was majorly huge, you guys. Acts chapter one identifies the church, the 120, uh, between Jesus' ascension and Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection, looking for a replacement for Judas. So they're like, hey, we, you know, Judas wasn't a legit apostle. Um, he denied the Lord, uh, betrayed the Lord. And so we, we need to find his replacement. And, and there were specific criteria uh, that needed to be met. So we're going to replace Judas in the minds of the apostles, Peter, James, and John, the rest of them, they're thinking, hey, you gotta be an eyewitness to the baptism of Jesus. You have to be present for his teachings and hearing the messages and a witness of his cross and resurrection. That's, that's very, very essential. And, and one of the reasons for that, and this is important for us to understand, to give some idea on how information in the ancient world was deemed credible, it had much to do with the person communicating it. So watch this. Let's go back 2,000 years ago. If I come out and we're in a synagogue and I say, hey, guys, let me tell you, you know, the emperor of Rome is in real trouble um, and da-da-da-da-da, and I give some statement of what's happening in, in Rome. I'm disseminating some information. First century, the credibility of of information had largely to do with the person communicating it. So it's like, well, where did you hear it? Is it, I mean, is, is the person communicating a credible witness? So therefore, to be an apostle sent out to make Christ known in the first century, um, and to hold that office and to, and to have that calling on your life, you needed to be like the most pristine, faithful witness. And therefore, it's like if you're an apostle, you got to be there at the beginning, baptism of John, the Holy Spirit coming on Jesus, teachings, cross, resurrection, because it's like you embody the message of the gospel itself. And you need to be incredibly credible. Were the apostles faithful witnesses? Man, absolutely, all were martyrs except John. And while we have the literary page today, it's based on eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus. I mean, every Christian could say, you know, the gospel has been passed down to me, not by having personal contact with the apostles who were eyewitnesses, nor with those who knew or interviewed the apostles, 
but I have received their testimony. I have believed the testimony of Scripture, and I've personally experienced the risen Christ and the power of his resurrection in my life. Paul had a unique call in his life as an apostle sent out one. He was embraced by Peter, James, and John. He was a unique sent out one with divine authority all over him to the nations, to the Gentiles. And Paul is saying, all by the will of God, no doubt about it. I mean, we could really spend all day talking about this. For time's sake, we need to move on, pick our shots. Look at verse one, and then he says, to the, to the saints, to the saints who are in Ephesus. Ephesus is this great city in what is modern-day Turkey. It's a port city, kind of a modern San Francisco um, that influenced you know, the, the cities around in a big way. In fact, if you study the book of Revelation, chapter two and three, address seven churches. The first is the church of Ephesus, and it was from Ephesus that the other six churches came. But I want you to look at the term saints there, you guys. I love this, because the term saints is a loaded one. He's writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. On one hand, it's a major term of blessing as it's addressed to non-Jews, actually. And the reason this is a great blessing is because in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the people of Israel, and sometimes even the angels were given the honored title of saints. It's a word that means those who have been set apart or holy. Now, watch this. Okay. I want you guys to raise your hand. How many of you are Christians? Raise your hand. You're a saint. Okay? You are a sanctified one. You, you have, watch this. This is what the Bible teaches, okay? We could talk about this all morning too. But the Bible says we have been sanctified by the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all, set apart, forgiven, made holy by what Christ accomplished on the cross for us. Watch this. We are in process every single day of being sanctified, growing more like Christ and knowing the healing, redemptive work of Jesus. And one day we will be sanctified because one day we're going to be with the Lord face to face and we will be in our glorified state. So it's like you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. You guys tracking with that? So like, here's the thing. I mean, on one hand, we think saints, I don't know, you think of some statue or someone who works a miracle or someone in a particular you know, church or church of Rome or something, but this is such a great term. You are a saint. Um, you're, you are a saint that has been sanctified. The basis of your relationship is like, God's love and grace in Christ. And look here, the heavenly father is like madly in love with you because look, this is from God. He said to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, they're a faithful church. We'll be talking about that in weeks to come. You know, he says grace and peace from God, our, everybody say the next word, our father, right? Just like, okay, well, this is coming from the heavenly father, you're a saint, grace and peace to you, kind of the Siamese twins in the New Testament, some 18 times in scripture. It comes from 
God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What does? Um, oh, my goodness. Every spiritual blessing that there could ever be that's in Christ. What, 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 is being, what he's saying here is all of this is coming. Grace and peace is coming to us from, from the Father and the Lord Jesus. And, and grace, grace is unmerited favor based upon the personal work of Jesus. And that's really what the first chapters, first three chapters are all about. It's, it's like this incredible, may I say, gooey, uh, syrupy, deep, thick love. I mean, you as a Christian are so loved, off the charts, loved. Saints, you're a saint in Christ. Grace and peace be to you. Grace, unmerited favor, gift, peace, peace with God. Know the shalom of well-being and the wholeness and redemptive work of Christ in your life. And and it's coming, it's coming from from the heavenly Father in Christ to us. Raise your hand if you get that. I mean, it's like, and it's really incredibly beautiful. Listen, when I started to get to know my bride, who's up here in the front row, she played, getting to know her before I married. I didn't know she was going to be my wife at the time. At least I don't remember. I don't remember. <laughs> but maybe I did. But it was a love that I've never experienced before. And this woman played my soul, or I should say her life moved me. It just moved my soul, kind of played my soul like I'd never experienced before. And I found myself writing ideas and notes that, um, of ideas that I'd never really written before. I'm thinking, you know, goodness gracious, all of a sudden I'm a poet, you know, I'm like Robert Frost or something, you know. It's like, how did this, where did this come from? Where, where, where did it come from? Now, and, and we, have, we have this love language with each other, early with our whole family, that I, I'm never going to communicate with you because you it would just be so gooey and weird and you wouldn't get it and you would just think you guys are so weird because it's like, if it's, you know, love is, is so unique. Love between two individuals is really unique DNA. You know, how many of you remember that old Dan Fogelberg song? Longer than there's been fishes in the ocean, higher than any bird ever flew, longer than there's been stars up in the heaven, I've been in love with you. I mean, you guys remember that song, right? right? All right, well, some few of you. Um, I mean, that's, that's, kind of, that's kind of gooey right there. I mean, look, I mean, Paul, just, Paul is caught up in this phenomenal love. That's like his address in, in verse three down to verse 14. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessings in the heavenlies 
in Christ. My goodness gracious, he's had his eyes on me, chose me before the foundation of the world. Is that not awesome or what? And it kind of leads to the third point. Ephesians is written to saints who are faithful, of whom grace and peace actually defines their life. I mean, the unmerited favor of God, it's, it defines who we are. The basis of my relationship with the Heavenly Father is, is just grace in Christ, love. It's not a performance treadmill. It's like right now, he just wants you to open your heart afresh and receive. He, he is madly in love with you. That is what he is communicating, madly in love. You say, well, Greg, you know, I still battle with sin. Of course. I mean, we're all in the process, actually, of personal sanctification and growth. You know, in a few moments, we're going to receive communion. And gosh, as a believer, just allow the Lord to recapture your heart with his his incredible, thick, beautiful, divine love and grace. Can I hear an amen to that? Just, man, just, Lord, afresh, you are the king. You won my heart. Just, I just open my heart to you and the work of your spirit. Recapture me again. I just, I, I just want to be, I want to be worshiping, knowing you, living you based on your incredible grace uh, in my life. And, and if you're here for the first time, a seeker, maybe an unbeliever, let me just ask you a question. Do, do you want this divine love? Do you want it? You know, I read a true story about a missionary in Korea who was just reaching out to these girls who were prostitutes. So many of them were entrapped and that and, and, being, and being horribly treated and things. And, and, and he was doing his best to share the gospel. And he's giving kind of these conventional invitations for them to respond, you know, trying to help them out of their situation. And, and they, were, they were just, they just couldn't embrace it. You know, they couldn't respond to it. They had a hard time thinking it was really actually for them. And finally, the missionary said, listen, do you know why some people come to Christ? Because God in his sheer mercy chooses some people so the people who come to Christ, like me, it has nothing to do with my efforts. It has nothing to do with my merits. It's because of his sheer love and grace, totally. And they responded, you're, you're kidding. They, of course, said it in Korean. I don't know how to say it in Korean. They said, you're kidding. And, and he said, well, look, how do you know? They said, how do you know? How, how, how do we know if we're, a, if, if we're the chosen? <laughs> if, if God really loves us, how do we know? And the missionary finally says, look, he just, he just said, do, do you want it? Because actually the Bible says, I, I can't even want it unless the Lord is drawing me to himself. So if you're here this morning, you're thinking, man, I want it. And I, I want his love and grace. And I want relationship with the Father and Christ. I mean, even for you to want it is a sign you are chosen. He is reaching out to you. But ultimately, of course, ultimately, one has to receive it. It's like, I mean, I, I mean if we just say this is a gift, and it is for, for those of you who are going to receive Christ. But I mean, if I, you, you, you could like extend a gift to someone, they obviously ultimately have to receive it. And, and the Lord wants you to receive. And you say, well, how, how do I do that? Number one, just recognize 
who the Lord is and what he's done in your life. He made you, he created you, he sent his son. Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. So recognize what he's done for you. And he's reached out to you and he loves you and he wants to come into your life. And number two, it's, it's critical we repent. Jesus said, unless you repent, you'll perish. And repentance carries the idea of changing the way you think, which leads to a lifestyle change. Think, thinking a U-turn in life, Jesus said there's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many go that way, a narrow way that leads to eternal life. And, and finally, really to receive him. Because really salvation, a right relation with God, it's a gift and it's to be received. And it can be received on a drop of a dime. The Bible says those who call upon him shall be saved.